Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor of the Philanthropy Journal. In this episode, Third Street Education Center's Donald Pilgreen and Michael Hopkins share their personal journeys from addiction to a life of service. Good morning, I'm Donald Pilgreen uh, here at Third Street Facility Services in Greenville, North Carolina. And I'm Michael Hopkins. Mike, where did you grow up in Eastern North Carolina? I grew up in New Bern, North Carolina. And growing up, what was growing up in New Bern, North Carolina like? Not a whole lot to do as a teenager. Not not a whole lot that was geared towards uh, the teenage life and younger people. It was mostly towards retirement age individuals. So I grew up in Halifax County, which is on the Virginia border. And it's just a farming community. And I grew up with nothing to do but play in the woods. Uh, and, and all the industry there is farm related and so that's, if you're not a farmer or you're at least in some farm-related industry if you live in that area. Growing up there, um, good childhood, you know, playing outside. And uh, eventually, I think boredom might have took over. And I got involved in some of the things that kids get involved in as teenagers out in those areas, uh, the drugs and the alcohol. And, and over time, those things become a problem for me. Yeah, I, I had similar experiences. Uh, the summer times... Uh, Really enjoyed because my grandparents lived on the outskirts of town, and I spent most of my days at their house running wild in the woods, you know, building forts and playing Tom Sawyer. And as I got a little older into my adolescent years, I started to experiment with things that I saw other people around me doing, you know, the drugs, the partying. And again, there wasn't a whole lot that was centered towards activities or entertainment for people my age group. You know, we had the movie theater to go to. But uh, how many times can you watch the same movie? And had the mall to go hang out in. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot to do. At some point in your life, did the drugs or the alcohol turn into an addiction? I would say in my 20s, my family and other people around me started to notice that I was uh, spending more of my time away from them and started to question what I was doing in that time. I think it was in my early 20s, 19 or 20 years old, for myself as well and you know I would do just go through periods of just binge using and and then I would stop more or less there was never really any sustained recovery what barriers did you face to recovery in Newburn? Uh, the first time that I found myself in trouble with the law in relation to uh, drinking I was ordered by the court to go to a 90-day treatment facility. That was more of a, for lack of a better term, just being processed through the system. Um, I didn't really learn anything while I was there. Nothing that really gave me the knowledge about what addiction was or what was wrong with me that I was in addiction. It was just more of a list of guidelines and rules for me to follow. And it just kind of put out the door at the end of 90 days to fend for myself. I think that's the case for a lot of people. And, and for me, uh, I've been mandated as well to go into certain uh, recovery programs, whether they are managed by the state or local or whatever the case. And, you know, it's one of those situations where it's, I, I didn't do it because I was wanted to do it. I did it because I was told to do it. Yeah. And I don't think that ever really worked. The, the dynamics, the demographics of the area I was raised in just don't allow that for so much. It's very rural. And so the demographically, I was challenged when it came to the point in my life where I needed to recover. 
I'm not blaming it all on the fact of where I lived, but it certainly wasn't, you know, of any benefit. Yeah, I, I found uh, after recovery and trying to follow up on it, that I only had a couple of different options. Uh, you know, it was the local AA meetings or the NA meetings. And I found that in those places, I was kind of the odd person in there. Nobody really my age. Everybody was mostly older than me. Just kind of wondered if I was in the right place or if it was any help to me being there. It wasn't until I went back to a rehab for the second time that I fell into a group of people that were more of my age. But most of them that I talked to seemed to be just, you know, they're going through the motions, doing what they were ordered to do. And uh, no, no real guidance or no real understanding of how to move away from that life and do something different. Because once I got back home, I was left with the same circumstances, same group of people, and I just kind of fell back into the same lifestyle. I can certainly relate to that because I, at one point in my life, I went to a very nice treatment facility in Greensboro and uh, stayed there. And it was great. I mean, I was having around people you know, my age, people who could, I could relate to. Uh, but once I left there, I came back east of I-95 and I was in the same situation that I was in, you know, before. Yeah. One AA meeting a week in the town I lived in. Certainly nobody in my age in recovery there. Uh, the first time I walked in, everybody in there looked like my grandfather. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's the reason they quit drinking because they got too old. And uh, I mean, that was literally I was all that I had. And uh, so at, over time... You know, due to this lack of those resources, I, I would end up, man, I'm certainly not laying blame on that. It's all, you know, all the blame, you know, I hold that. Uh, but due to lack of resources, I was never really fully, could fully get engaged into recovery. When you're in that position and you're being exposed to something new and different, the resources available to you make a big difference in what your decision-making process is. You know, if that's... If the local AA and NA meetings are all that I knew about, that's all I had available to me. In New Bern, I found over the course of my addiction and trying to be in recovery, uh, there's not a lot of resources for that other than those two things, other than going into private rehab facilities. And a lot of them are based off of the same thing. Being here in Greenville, and the difference in the resources available to me and the things that I've been introduced to that have helped me in my recovery is a, a noticeable difference in uh, what's available to people seeking recovery. funny in the recovery world they always say Ge geographical cures don't work geographical cures just aren't the answer but for you it sounds like a geographical change it was may very well have been the answer and for me I, I can ascertain you that that was the answer for me um, I ended up in Raleigh uh, because I, I no longer had insurance and I no longer had anybody who would foot the bill for a $30,000 a month treatment uh, facility and I went online and up pops a facility called the Healing Place of Wake County. It's now Healing Transitions. And uh, I found out that it didn't cost me a dime to go there. And I had to go somewhere because I was 
homeless at that point. Uh, all I had was my truck, and you know, I'm just not tough enough to live in that. I'm sorry. I, I went and I stayed at the healing place for 11 months. It absolutely changed my life. The healing place is is a nonprofit treatment facility slash homeless shelter in Raleigh, and uh, from that point, it not only helped me get into sustained recovery. I think the most important thing I learned there was a life of service because when I was there, the hands that reached out to me to say, let me show you how to do this or let me help you with this. I truly think that that, that was a life-changing experience for me. And uh, I owe so much to the Healing Place of Wake County. I really do. You know, we don't have that type of opportunity for people in eastern North Carolina. Yeah. We don't. It's it's for people who specifically live in Wake County, uh, unless there are special circumstances. And, and just so happen, my stepfather works in Wake County. He doesn't live there, but he works in Wake County, and I was gotten in on in that way. And um, it's it's just it was a beautiful experience. It's truly you know created the man that you see sitting here talking to you today. Um, so tell me what uh, life is like in Greenville for you now. Uh, my life is 180 degrees from where it was last year. Uh, I came to Greenville on a Greyhound bus from the prison with nothing but the clothes on my back. And since March is when I really decided that I was going to try to live my life as somebody that's accountable and takes responsibility for their actions. Being here at Third Street, just the example that's been set for me by people like you and Nathan and the confidence you have shown in me and the trust that you've placed in me. You know, I find myself sometimes thinking, you know, um, the only way I got here was by placing God in my life first and trying to live a life that is not about myself, but about doing something in the world to make a difference, to uh, try to pass that love and mercy that's been shown to me onto others around me. It's just, it's amazing to me every day when I wake up, I wake up expecting because I can't wait to see what God's got in store for me for what's next. And I can lay my head down at night with confidence and feeling good about myself and feel like I've done something that has made a difference. I'm not just living my life for me anymore and what I want and what's appealing to me. Um, I'm trying to live my life for the others around me. Tell us about Third Street Facility Services and Workforce Business Development. How it helped you and what we do now to try to help others. Okay. Because the life of service is, in the, at the end, the life of service to others it's the only thing that'll keep you and I on the right path. Yeah. It's to take men just like me, just like you, uh, that may be made some mistakes and done some things the wrong way in the past, and now we have a past that follows us around. It inhibits us from finding good jobs that, uh, you know, kind of puts a black mark against us as far as a lot of society views us. And it works on taking those men and helping them to build a positive work history um, where they learn to be responsible, be accountable, to do a good job, 
And it also tries to mentor to them and to speak to them on a spiritual level so that the things that made them the person that made those mistakes and got into trouble helps them to see that there's a way to do things in a better way to, uh, to make us be responsible and accountable for our own actions. You know, when I first came here two years ago, I, I saw this job as the opportunity to use my past as a benefit rather than a hindrance. And when the first year, I guess, we, we went along and I felt like I was just giving guys a job and I was just running a business. I was just helping manage a business. And God really began to speak to my heart. And I even mentioned it to Nathan. I said, Nathan, God is just really is after me now. This is like early in, especially the spring of this year. And I said, I'm not doing enough. I'm supposed to be doing more than just running a lawn care and landscaping business. And that's when I realized that recovery for the guys that we seek out and bring in, you know, for employee, recovery means so much more than just us giving them a job. It means uh, not running their lives, but getting involved in their lives, getting, you know, taking them aside and saying, how, how are things going? Do you, how are you financially? How are you, are you making it? You know, finding out their backstory. Yeah. Uh, I had a conversation the other day with Chris because I just only knew tidbits of his backstory. I knew he had been in an orphanage and I knew he had been in and out of foster care. But, you know, I just wanted to know the whole story. I felt like that if I did, you know, I could certainly relate more to where he's at some days. And I could certainly, you know, just the more I know, the better. Because um, if I don't know, I just can't, you know, I can't be of any help. Uh, so he took the time we were riding and he told me about, you know, how he ended up in the orphanage and how he was in and out of foster care and it was so bad and he'd run away and things like that. Uh, and it made me realize that, wow, you know, that's, my life was a piece of cake compared to that. We both ended up in the very same situations. You know, some people, those roads have been really, really rough, man. And, you know, I, I try to meet them where they are today. Just to really, you just, it's a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. uh, we got some guys who come in and just, they're happy and fly. The day you got here, I, I told another uh, employee of Third Street, I said, he's going to be the best employee we have. And I, I wasn't wrong. I was not wrong at all about that. I could just see something in you. You were already, your mind was made up. I felt like your mind was made up. and uh, But that's not the case with all the guys that we get. Yeah. And so, uh, but we really have to get uh, involved in their lives as much as they'll let us. And that doesn't mean managing their lives, you know, in our case, but just showing them that we care about much more than them coming out and doing a good job. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to do, we want more for them to just come out and do a good job for you and I. You and I. Some days it's harder than others. You know, at the end of the day, that's what uh, that's what it's all about for the, the program that we manage, which is workforce business development. It's, it's all about, it's not about the profits. It, I won't say it's not about the service to the customer because we have to do, you have to provide good service in order to keep the ministry operable. But it's all about reforming the lives of the guys that we bring in. As I mentioned before, the peace and the joy I get uh, from seeing guys just with a little small successes, it brings me so much peace and joy. And that's, for me, is uh, the biggest part of my recovery today. So it's places like this 
that we didn't have the opportunities in Eastern North Carolina before, uh, but there are places like Third Street Facility Services that are popping up here uh, that are providing some of those opportunities that you and I didn't have in yeah. the past when we were in the midst. Yeah, that reminded me of uh, something I tell myself all the time, that the drinking and drugs, they were just a Band-Aid over the problem. Yeah. A lot of times the source of the problem and what led to the the using or the getting in trouble with the law or underlying issues that come from the environment we come from, the family or lack of family we had, and trying to recognize what those are. And like you said, it's an individual case-by-case -case basis. Um, but just for example, the, the two guys on my crew that I feel like I've kind of tried to take under my wing and uh, kind of be an example for them and be a, a mentor to them in some ways, I've been able to see the changes in their attitudes, their character, and I get more fulfillment out of that than anything because then I feel like I've taken all the bad in my life and allow God to turn it around and use it in a way where now I can benefit others with my experiences. I think it's important that, and, and, and you and I both have experienced this, uh, and I think it's really important that we always remember that not everybody is going to get it yeah. as fast as others. And sometimes we've got guys, because we do actively seek out those guys in re who are new in recovery and to try to help them get back on their feet because, you know, that's where our passion is. I think it's important that we realize that sometimes those guys are going to stumble. I'm certainly aware of that, and I realize just how difficult it is because of all the times that I stumbled in the past. You know, I tell people that I stopped a thousand times. I stopped only to start back a thousand times. Um, and I just didn't get it that quick. You know, I, from 19 to, you know, what, 44? Yeah. Took me that long to finally get it, the sustained recovery. Um, I had a lot of stumbles, and we're going to face those same stumbles. Uh, it's so frustrating because you want everybody just to get it. Yeah. Um, but the beauty of it is, is that uh, a lot of people didn't give up on me. And I just, it takes a lot for me to give up on one of our guys, you know. Yeah. And, um, it truly becomes a, you truly come to care and love those people. We love them because they come in and they do a great job for us and they make our life so much easier. But we truly love them because we see that them going through the same struggles or have come through the same struggles that we've come through. And, you know, and once you're on the other side, I want them to see my life as this is what it can be. Yeah. You know, you got to think from coming from homelessness to now managing Third Street Facility Services, being married, a very successful, happy marriage, owning a home, having two stepdaughters that, you know, I couldn't ask for better. So from homelessness to this point, four years, it's unbelievable that I don't have any wants yeah. and I don't have any needs. Because the greatest thing that I've been given is that peace of mind. It's priceless. And uh, so we know that it can be done. We know that it's attainable. Um, if we provide the same hand to reach back that people provided to us. Well, a lot of times, just that act of love and showing interest, genuine interest in their life and them, um, some, some of these guys, first time they've ever been shown that in their life. They, they didn't come from a, a loving, happy home. And I think sometimes that can be the, 
one factor that makes a difference. You know, it's, it's funny that you, that you just bring that up. I mean, we hit on it just a second ago about the, the fact that this disease does not discriminate. You know, I grew up in uh, one sibling, perfect looking home. My parents had some marital problems that separated a couple times. I, I grew up in a private school, small place. Um, just, you know, I was with the in crowd. I was a great football player, a good baseball player. And you just would have never thought that I was going to end up spending 14 of my <laughs> 14 of years of my life in prison. You, I know about your family, and I, so I know your background. And you just would have never guessed that Michael, little Michael, was going to be this guy. And then you take some guys that you th who grew up here, maybe in West Greenville, from, from a fatherless home, um, and their environment was a lot different than ours. But yet we both end up in the same place. Yeah. And so that, that's just evidence that this disease does not discriminate in the least. Yeah. It's kind of like what you and I were talking about this morning about the Bible studies trying to find a way to reveal to the other guys what it is I've found. And um, just sometimes you're sitting there, just, you want to just grab them and shake them and say, hey, man. But you have to remember that. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Yeah, it's, it's a journey, and we're all on our own journey. Yeah. Um, the important thing is being there as an example, like you said, to so that they can see, hey, you know, there's another side to this. There's a, a better way. Than what I've been doing, and I think that's where a lot of guys struggle uh, coming out of situations like ours. They they don't know any other way, and there's not a lot there to show them there is a, a better way. Um, that's one of the things I've been most impressed with about Greenville, about Pitt County, just the the establishments and the people um, on the monetary end of it and on the the input end of it as far as being mentors and teachers that are willing to make themselves available and try to help guys to get past that part of their life to move well, on to something better. We're very fortunate. Um, a lot of the contacts I have in roles that you're speaking of are people who are in some way affiliated with Third Street and I've met them that way. So many of them are with certain churches here in Greenville. Um, so I've had the benefit of Third Street, you know, to just you know, get a resource list from. Uh, and where I can in turn say, this guy needs clothes. And I can pick up the phone and I can say, hey, I got a guy that needs clothes. And, or a TV or furniture. And you know, I've got a resource that'll just, it'll even deliver it. Yeah. And that's amazing. And people... You know, when you do that, when they see that, they're like, whoa, you, they can't believe that somebody will do that for them. Yeah, I was a benefactor on that end of those things. Yeah. And, uh, I, mean, they, I was kind of amazed at yeah. <laughs> the generosity of other people. Well, you know, it's a trickle-down effect because it's not like that, that organization goes out and buys all those clothes. There are people who take those clothes to God's love. And she puts them in the sizes, and then if somebody calls, she just gives them, you know, she's all she is is the middleman. Uh, but so there is a lot of uh, a lot of giving from a lot of different sources that goes on there. It's just not from that single source. 
Uh, but once again, you know, she's affiliated with one of those churches who is affiliated with Third Street and uh, that resource list. But there are people with beautiful hearts. There are people with just beautiful hearts, man, that are willing. Uh, and fortunately, uh, it took it took drug addiction reaching the upper middle class for it to become a big issue. And uh, slowly the stigma yeah. is starting to be removed. Uh, they call it substance use disorder now instead. <laughs> they don't <laughs> call it junkies and addicts anymore. Um, and it's a shame that it took that. But fortunately, fortunately, that's allowing the stigma to be removed. Yeah, it's, you know? uh, it started to affect every generation, um, every different type of background. Uh, from high-class families down to your lowest-level lowest lowest level families as far as economical status goes. Uh, and people are becoming more aware of the impact it's having on society. Well, and, and I'm going to harp on this, I guess, but it's sad that that's what it took to get the resources. I use this example a lot as I came through the crack cocaine era. Yeah. And crack cocaine was a ghetto drug. I did too. And the government never jumped in. They never jumped in and says, let's go save the crack addicts. But when, you know, Johnny Smith over here and his dad's the CEO of yeah. this corporation, started overdoses. from opiates and heroin. And we got to do something. Yeah. We got to do something. Like I say, we'll let bygones be bygones. It's just, you know, it's, I hate this is what it took. But at least we are seeing those resources in the community at a community level and a national level as well. That now that the problem has come more to the light, I feel like places like Third Street are gonna be instrumental in doing something to help people get their lives back together and get back on track. Well, it's just like you and I talked about this morning though, that still there's an underlying problem. All we hear is prevention, prevention, prevention. Well, if all we done was prevent cancer, what about all the people who already have cancer? We're just gonna write them off. Yeah and not treat them. It's the very same thing with drug addiction. You hear prevention, and prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Prevention's great. But what about the ones who are already addicted and it's too late for prevention? We've got to provide treatment for them somehow. And then that goes back to talking about, you know, our goal of having a long-term treatment program uh, attached to Third Street Facility Services. Well, it's like the analogy I made to you about the Band-Aid. You know. Yeah. The the substance abuse, that's just the cover-up of the wound. Um, if we can get to what the underlying problems are that cause people to seek out those things, then we stand a better chance of doing something to curb that epidemic and change it. Well, it was my experience that, true, I really, and I firmly believe that there is always an underlying issue to the the underlying issue was the reason I ever felt it necessary to pick up a drug or yeah. a drink in the first place. I ever felt, wow, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that because I knew better. Uh, so there's always an underlying issue, but it takes time to get into that. Yeah. First, you got to do is you got to remove them from the environment. You got to get get that obsession because with me, my alcoholism and my drug addiction came along with an obsession to yeah. use. Uh, that it was it was almost like it was talking to me. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I wish I could do that. And uh, so you get that, and then you can start working on the man. 
once you remove some of those things, yeah. you can start working on the man. Because there is a, someone told me when I was a young kid, oh, I think I was about 14 years old, my mom told me one day, she said, son, the reason people drink is because they're not happy with the person they are when they're sober. And I thought, well, there's got to be, that can't be so true. There's a lot of truth in that. Well, guess what? <laughs> I found out that was the exact reason that I was drinking. I wasn't comfortable with who I was when I was sober. I still don't know that that's the case for everybody who has a glass of wine with dinner. But for me, you know, it was definitely a social lubricant. I needed that to be able, I don't know if you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory, but Rajesh yeah. Kuthapali on The Big Bang Theory couldn't talk to girls unless he had been drinking. He couldn't say a word. <laughs> so that was almost like me. Yeah. Uh, but so there was an underlying issue there, that, in, that inferiority and that low self-esteem and things like that. So I think uh, we really have the opportunity, man, to uh, take our past uh, and with the support of some really, really good people and resources around us, I think we have the great, a great opportunity in the community to uh, lay the foundation for a program that will benefit, that will help those who have been in the same situations in the past that you and I have. Sure. I think, like I say, we've got a great board behind us, a uh, great leader behind us, and, and you and I have the experience of the suffering and the recovery from that, that we could really help people and change their lives. And, and the evidence of it can be done. Absolutely. Well, I've certainly enjoyed having this conversation with Me you too. today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. TNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gollicke. Our graduate assistant editor is David Moore. And our communications assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Moore, who also wrote the theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.